0: Um, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 9 and um, I want you to know that very very seldom do I stand up to preach um, because we get started, while we're getting started I should say this, there's ushers coming down, grab a Bible if you need one, I want God's word in front of you we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9 but as I get ready and am coming up here I count it a privilege that God has allowed me to pastor um, such a goofy church Um, you all are goofy And uh, this past week, I was looking at um, our attendance numbers, kind of some of the stuff year over year, and our church continues to grow. Every service is larger year over year, with one exception, the 11 o'clock at Spring Lake, which is noticeably shrinking, which is really odd to me because this used to always be the busiest, most full service, but over the last year, this is actually of the five services, this is the least attended service. Did you guys know that? It's just very bizarre how that's happened. Our biggest service is actually the 11 o'clock at Grand Haven, which last year at this time was the smallest. So there's been this huge shift of people in what service that they attend. But there's a lot of people here this morning for the 11 o'clock. Why do you think that is? How many of you would normally be at the 9, but you're like, there's just no way I'm getting up. Just be bold. Raise your hand. Okay, so there's some of you. How many of you showed up at 10 o'clock thinking you were coming to the 9 o'clock and realized you had a half hour to eat donuts and burn because you didn't even know there was a time change? Was anybody willing? Really? Yeah, for, for sure. So I was, I had no clue that this was time change Sunday until... Friday my wife told me you should let the church know send out an email or something I'm like I thought it was spring forward this feels like winter forward I I wasn't ready this year so it is really nice to see so many of you at the 11 o'clock this morning it's great and um, warning if you attend here normally this morning is going to be long introduction shorter time in God's word that's not because I didn't have time to prepare I think chapter 9 presents an interesting challenge there's some things that Paul is going to talk about in chapter 9 and I'm going to take our main points directly from the text like we always try to do but Paul is teaching one thing and it's important to hear what he's saying but in this case in chapter 9 it's really important that we understand why he's saying the things that he's saying because I think there's a story behind the story Before um, I pastored here, and and in the first year that I pastored here, I was also coaching soccer at Western Michigan Christian, and uh, as a soccer coach, I love coaching, and my number one job as a soccer coach is to teach the kids, wow, you guys are really alert. You're the crowd that slept in. The nine o'clock was better at that. As a soccer coach, I teach the kids, kind of. That's the stated reason why I'm there. But quite honestly, I'm I'm pushing for bigger things. Like for some kids, I'm trying to teach them um, a work ethic. For others, it's responsibility. For others, it's boldness. For some of them, it's uh, less selfishness. As a coach, I'm always trying to accomplish different things that go beyond that have life application rather than just sport application. And I remember there was this one kid that I coached at WMC, he was a very, very gifted player, he was a defender, I worked with the defense, and his name was Casey Nelson. And Casey has attended this church, great kid, my problem was he never would talk. He was like mute on the field, which makes it really hard to play defense because you've got to be communicating with the other defenders, like, hey, that guy's open on the wing, you take him, I'll take this person, we need to switch. I couldn't get him to talk. So by his senior year, I was so frustrated with him as a defender, I put a rule in place, I said. If you're on the field, your lips have to be moving. I don't care if you're talking to your teammates, the other team. You can sing to yourself. You can babble. But if your lips aren't moving, you're coming off the field. For him, my whole goal was trying to teach him to communicate. it was interesting, I, I lost track of him after we coached, and I was pastoring here one Sunday, and he came up front afterwards, really excited to see me. He's like, hey, coach, you remember me? My name's Casey. You used to coach me. I went to Hope College. I majored in business. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm like, what is going on with Casey? And I'm like, what are you doing now? He goes, I'm in sales. (laughs) And and, and I'm just going to tell you, I chalked that up to the personal win column. I think what happened was he met a girl, but I don't care. And and so I I took that as a win because though we were teaching him soccer, there was something else that we were driving at that was more important. Paul's doing that in chapter 9. And uh, we're going to look at what he teaches, but I want you to consider while he's teaching some other things that he's looking to communicate. Let's start in verse 1, chapter 9. Paul says this, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. If you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Now, the key word in that whole three verses is this, defense. Paul is on the defensive. You are on the defensive when you are under attack. So there is something, we don't know exactly what it is going on in the Corinthian church. Back in chapter seven, Paul said that he was responding to a letter and it could be that Paul was responding to some things written in the letter, but he definitely felt on the defensive, under attack by not the people of Corinth, but by specifically the people of the church in Corinth. The text says, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle?" Could be that they were attacking his calling. Is he says, "Have I not seen? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord?" Could be they were attacking his credibility. He goes on and says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? It could be that they were beginning to ignore the influence that Paul had had on his life. Critics are unclear on why Paul was under attack. It could be that in the city of Corinth, which was a a fluent cosmopolitan city, it could be that Paul was just a little too earthy. He was a little too gritty. He was a little bit too direct to their liking. It could be that as Paul traveled through Asia Minor because he was associated with the church of Corinth because he planted it, that as he was creating problems and coming under persecution and maybe some of that persecution was starting to drift back onto the Corinthian church and they just didn't like it. Some believe, because Paul's going to talk about this idea in chapter 9 that pastors should be paid... And since Paul wasn't paid by the Corinthian church, it could be actually that the Corinthian church wanted to pay Paul, he wouldn't accept it, and by not accepting it, since money can be influence, they wanted to control Paul, and he was resistant to it. We don't know exactly why he was under attack, but please understand, he was under attack. How would that make you feel? If you planted a church... And you constantly felt like you were under attack. Now, in saying that, Friday night, I ta- or Saturday night, I taught this message. Somebody came to the 9 o'clock service, and they said, boy, I really feel bad that you feel under attack, and you have to say these things. I'm not. I don't. I'm telling you Paul's story, not my story. This is Paul's. I- I'm treated very, very well here. I'm in great space. I'm not discouraged. But you can understand, if you understand that Paul is under attack, how he would feel discouraged, right? Disappointed, losing his enthusiasm. He is striving for one thing and the very people that he has been working with are now the ones that are attacking him. Had to be discouraging. Had to wonder if he was falling short. Have, have any of you ever given best efforts and tried out for an athletic team only to find out you didn't make the team? Or studied for a test or poured yourself into a class not the class that you skip and you just get by with a C, but like you really tried and you continue to struggle and you know fail that class or pass that class you know he's he's in a situation where you can understand why he would be discouraged and before I even go into the text let me remind you a little bit about Paul's resume Paul was not his birth name he was actually called Saul he was born in a city called Tarsus And that is in modern-day Turkey. Paul was Jewish by nationality, but he was also a Roman citizen. And that would give him the opportunity and the ability to do some very specific things that God had called him to do. Now, in saying that, uh, Roman citizen but Jewish nationality, how many people in here got to choose their nationality? Anyone? Anybody choose where you were going to be born? Anybody get to choose your parents? Anybody wish they could have chosen? I don't want to go there. That will will digress really quickly. But, But my point is, even from the beginning of Paul's testimony, he is being positioned by God to accomplish the very things that God called him to do. Not only who he was born to, what nationality, his Roman citizenship. It wasn't just who, it was when. Romans 5, 6 says that while we were still weak at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. You can track the Old Testament, and God uniquely picked the time that He would send Jesus Christ as Messiah to die and rise again. And things were set up for the gospel to expand. There was Roman rule at the time, which meant that there was uh, relative safely travel was possible. The Romans built tons of roads; it was easy for the gospel to spread before Paul was born but what he enjoyed during his lifetime there was a uh, temple in Jerusalem which meant Jews that were spread across Asia Minor would come back once a year and they would gather in Jerusalem so if a message could be communicated in Jerusalem it could be quickly disseminated to the rest of the world wherever Paul went on missionary journeys because the Jews had scattered throughout Asia Minor there was always a synagogue which gave him the opportunity to preach. There was many factors in place that led to Paul's ability to do what God would call him to do. It says in Acts 22.3 that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Paul has an educated man. Gamaliel was one of the top two rabbis of his day. Galatians 1.14, Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He was smart, he was well-educated, and his ability was met with opportunity. He was ambitious. Acts 22.4 says that he persecuted the way. The way was what the early church was called. That was the name for the church, the way. He says, I persecuted the church to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. I find it very interesting that Paul is running in the exact opposite direction doing the exact counter things to what God would eventually call him to accomplish. Acts two six says, Again, Saul speaking, he says, and I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He goes on in verse 10, he says, Paul says, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, hear this, rise and go to Damascus. And listen, it says, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Is there any doubt in Paul's testimony that God grabbed him by the neck, turned him around, and positioned him to accomplish the very things that God had called him to do? See, his testimony is about God's working in him rather than his choices. He goes on in Galatians 1 and says it this way. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born... And who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles Paul recognizes the entire story of his life is not his story it's God's story what did Paul do to prepare himself to be a missionary to be used by God as the one specifically called at this specific time to preach the gospel to the Gentiles he did nothing of its own God had placed him there to accomplish a special purpose. Which leads me to my first point today. You're going to want to write this one down. Here's the first point. You are special. I know that's important. Some of you just needed to hear that. That's going to be your takeaway today. You are a snowflake. You are special. Okay? And I mean that sincerely in a sense. You have been positioned by God in your circumstance to accomplish a stewardship or a task that he's given to you. It is different than the task that he's given to me. Have you ever contemplated that? Thought about the fact that God has you in this season, in this place, for a specific purpose. To accomplish something that you are uniquely gifted to accomplish. Like Paul, Ephesians 2.10 says for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the idea is that you are uniquely placed by God at this moment to accomplish his works, and just like Paul, this was appointed to you before you were born. You were special. You don't get to choose how and where you're going to be used by God. God will determine how he chooses to use you. But through obedience and through diligence, we should be considering, God, what would you have me to do in this season, in this place, at this time? Just like Paul did. This is true in so many stories. A couple weeks ago, I preached, as we did Baptism Sunday from 1 Samuel 15... And we told the story of not this Saul, but King Saul from the Old Testament, that he forfeited his ability to be used by God through disobedience. So many times, we're trying to discover how we're going to be special. Like, I want to do special things. Well, here's the truth. You've got to be obedient in the mundane things before God is going to use you for the special things you need to bloom where you're planted this is the story that we see repeated over and over in scripture we've seen it repeated over and over with the people of our church I was thinking this week as I prepared of of Eric Klingel and Eric has planted a church he planted in December in Fremont the church has done very very well it's it's five six hundred people meeting there every week just in a couple months but if you were A a person who lived in Fremont, it would look to you like this church just popped out of nowhere, and it's just going crazy. And it's like, man, this thing really took off. The backdrop to that story is Eric was raised in a uber conservative church, King James only, no jeans. Worked in that environment, was educated in that environment. and and diligently served the Lord in that environment until it sucked the life out of him after more than a decade. And Eric had moved to Michigan. He came to this church fully committed to never go into ministry again. Opposite direction. I'm out. And God began to work in his heart, and he took a position on uh, this staff, and we just saw God's gifting in him and God's calling, and we said, well, maybe God's looking for you to plant. And Eric never raised his hand not me and then all of a sudden God got a hold of his heart and you couldn't stop him from doing what God called him to do and he approached the opportunity in Fremont with zeal but again he was dead set against that five years before he did it and now he's thriving because that's God's story and God had taken his whole history to position him to do what he has now called him to do even though Eric couldn't see it coming. Same story is true of my wife. You should have met her first husband. He was an idiot. And I can say that with certainty because I am her first husband. And, and, and there's a lot of faithfulness and I'm starting to turn the corner. I feel like there's movement. But, but often you see God over long seasons preparing people for a certain task. So here's the first point. You are special. Here's the second point if you're keeping notes. You are not that special. Okay, worked hard on this this week. Um, we're told in Psalm 139, 13 through 14, it says, You, speaking of God, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I have been wired with certain abilities and deficiencies which have some effect in determining how God's going to use me. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm a big fan of the NFL. This week has been the NFL combines. All the guys are doing their races and getting timed in their sprints and how strong they are because there's a draft in about a month and I'll probably watch the draft and I've done this for many years but here's the truth. I've never heard my name called because I can't run a 4440. and those, those dudes are big. Like, like I'm not that guy. I wasn't equipped to be in the NFL. I love math. And when I say math, I mean addition and subtraction. <laughs> when you start throwing letters in there, it gets really confusing for me. I've never been called to be a professor teaching calculus 2. God has equipped me to do some things and I'm not equipped to do other things. And as we go through 1 Corinthians 9 has a backdrop, you're not an apostle. You weren't called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul had a special calling on his life. And some of us don't have that special calling. All of us. There's not an apostle in the room. Paul's special. If all of us were special, the word special wouldn't mean anything. And many of us are called to obedience as a steward where God has placed us. And husbands, you're called to steward your families. You're called to steward your wives. And, well, I'd rather be preaching the gospel through Asia Minor. That's not where God placed you. Do what he's called you to do. Parents, intentionally parenting your children and showing them in the way that you parent, leading them to a relationship to Jesus Christ. That's your calling. In your job, to to work hard, to work with integrity. These are all things that we are called to do. You're not the Apostle Paul. Our calling is not his calling, but we all have a calling. And here's the second reason I say that you're not that special. In our culture, at this season, in our country, we are um, asphyxiated with this idea of entitlement. It's interesting, I read this week an article, and the article was picking on one generation. It was written by a guy by the name of Tim Urban from the Huff, uh, Huffington Post, and the article was entitled Why Generation, Y Yuppies Are Unhappy. And it was interesting, I don't think, though he made it generational, I don't think it's generational, I think it's cultural, I think it applies to more than just one subset or age group. But he, he made this point, and it's interesting, he put up this equation He said that um, happiness equals reality minus expectations. Happiness equals reality minus your expectations. And let me explain this. If our reality exceeds our expectations, that tends to mean that we're happy people if we're doing better in our career than we thought that we would, if we're doing better financially than we expected that we would, if we're having more success, we're more popular than we might have expected ourselves to be. When our reality exceeds our expectations, we tend to be happy. The reverse is also true. When our expectations exceed our reality, we tend to become discouraged, lose our enthusiasm, and become unhappy. And the problem that we have in our culture is because of this um, entitlement that we carry, we always have expectations that exceed our reality. It's interesting, I was watching a couple Uh, weeks ago, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but on Sunday night they were having the Academy Awards and I was couldn't watch the whole thing because I get really bored easy, but we were flipping back and forth on commercials and I watched um, Lady Gaga come up and receive her Academy Award for best something. I don't even remember what it was. So she comes up forward. She says well I'm just so thankful and I'm thankful to this person, this person, this person, and I just want you to know I've worked very very hard to get here and I put in so much effort, but if you work hard and you believe in yourself and you never doubt yourself, you can be here as well. Is that true? Like, I don't think everybody's gifted to sing, like, Lady Gaga. And okay, am I talking about Lady Gaga in a sermon? It's a whole other problem. We'll, we'll <laughs> Give me some grace. But, but what I'm saying is, not only is she a gifted talent, but she had to get every break to go her way to end up where she did. And the reality is, not all of us can end up right exactly where she was. But we believe that we can, because this is what we're told over and over Paul Harvey, a University of New Hampshire professor, reports of Gen Y, again I think this is more cultural than generational, he says that they have unrealistic expectations, they have inflated views of oneself, they feel entitled to a level of respect and rewards that aren't in line with their actual ability and effort levels. And then to make it worse, they have a strong resistance toward accepting negative feedback. And then to complicate all of this, we're surrounded online with this image-crafting where people only put onto Facebook and social media their successes rather than their failures. So as we look at the formula, happiness equals our reality, less our expectations, our expectations are inflated because the person is posting on Facebook, not the fact that they're sitting at home alone in their pajamas eating popcorn, but they're putting their vacations online. And all you see are the highlights. And it's led to a culture that is discouraged because they believe things should be one way because of entitlement when it really isn't. And I'm scared for the church that we're going to follow our culture. I believe I'm special. I should be able to do anything that I want to do and I believe that God is all powerful and can do whatever he wants to do. So why has he placed me in the mundane rather than making me the star of the show? And there's dangers here. I think there's dangers to entitlement. These are free. They're not in your notes. I'll give you them. There's three. Here's the first. It distorts our perception of reality. Distorts our perception of reality. Seeing the world through the lens of entitlement distorts your vision of reality. As as an example, you understand that if your news source, day after day after day after day is only Fox Fox News, you have a distorted view of reality. And if you're... um, only news source is CNN, you have a distorted view of reality, because by their own admission, our news sources have a bias in the way they present the news. When we view our world through the lens of what we're entitled to, just understand, you get a broken view of reality. Here's the second thing, it impairs our ability to be grateful. When we are entitled, rather than seeing ourselves as thankful, We see ourselves as deserving. That's a problem. And then here's the third. It destroys relationships. We become self-focused. We become self-centered. We begin to think, well, I deserve this and I deserve this. And it's not just our relationship with other people. It is our relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we become disappointed and we lose our enthusiasm. And as I go into 1 Corinthians 9, I, I can't help but think that Paul is discouraged He's pouring his life out for the gospel. He describes to the Corinthians church in 2 Corinthians all of the dangers and all of the punishments and everything that he's been through and the shipwrecks for the sake of the gospel. And he's pouring his life into fulfilling what God has called him to do. And yet the very church that he's planted is critical of him. You can sense the discouragement. You can sense his loss of enthusiasm. I don't know if it's true or not, but he could have been writing Chapter 9 on spring forward Sunday, who knows? I don't know how daylight savings worked in the Roman Empire. You can't be sure, maybe. But all of these things, he's discouraged. He's losing his enthusiasm. If I were in Paul's shoes, I wonder how excited I'd be to be the pastor of the Corinthian church. Here's some evidences of faded enthusiasm, some things I see in my own life when I become discouraged When my enthusiasm fades, I'm not excited about God's people. I become task-driven rather than people-driven. Church feels more like an obligation than an excitement. My patience becomes short. I begin to look more forward to the week off of small group than I do the weeks where we gather as a small group. These are just indications in my life. Any of you ever feel this way? Don't leave me hanging. I become critical And annoyed rather than loving. I'm not excited about God's people. I'm not excited about time with God. I I prep sermons, but it feels more like a job than a joy. My prayer life begins to disappear. I find myself distracted and disengaged during worship. Not excited about God's people. I'm not excited about time with God. Other pursuits become central. Horizontal pursuits replace My pursuit of God. I begin to focus on activity rather than my relationship with the Lord. For like me, this is golf. Is the snow ever going to melt? When do I get to go outside? Why does it have to be so cold? Is this ever going to stop? If I could just go golfing, then I would be happy. I wouldn't be so irritable. And don't leave me hanging. You guys do this too, right? Maybe not golf, but other things. And all of a sudden, I become critical, I become selfish, I become annoyed. Because here's the reality, golf or whatever it is, the things of this world never satisfy. And when we take our eyes off the Lord and begin to let other pursuits become central, our enthusiasm will fade. Here's the big idea this morning, and I want to show you how Paul battles faded enthusiasm in his life. The big idea is this. If my enthusiasm for the things of God fade, it's time to remember the gospel. If my enthusiasm for the things of God fade, it's time to remember the gospel. Look at verse 4. Let me walk you through what he's teaching here. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Peter or Cephas? And here's what Paul is defending. He's saying, I'm entitled to the same things that other people are allowed to enjoy. There's nothing special about me because I'm an apostle where I'm stripped of my rights. I have the same rights and privileges as everyone else. And he's going to carry this argument forward into a discussion of whether or not he has the right to be paid as a minister of the gospel. He's going to argue this from several different viewpoints. The first one is obviously he deserves to be paid because it is ordinary and is acceptable when a man labors in any area he deserves to be paid for his efforts this is in verse 6 or is it only barnabas and i who have no right to refrain from working for a living verse 7 who serves as a soldier at his own expense if you were a soldier in the military you would expect there would be the expectations that your needs would be provided for Goes on and says, Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? If you're a farmer, you get to enjoy from the produce. He says, Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I think he's talking about sheep here. And I don't know how, like, do people drink sheep's? Don't, don't raise your hand. Um, but, but you get it. He's saying, if, if I'm a shepherd, I get to enjoy from the produce of what I'm raising. Then he goes to biblical arguments, verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? It says, "For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an axe or an ox,, ax, ox. You should not muzzle an ox when it t- treads out the grain. Then he asks this question. He says, "Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does He not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the ploughman should plow in hope, and the thresher's thresh in hope of sharing the c- crop. He's saying, in the Old Testament, they gave the example that even the ox should be able to eat for his work. And he's saying it wasn't because Moses was concerned about animals. He wasn't the founding member of PETA. All of this was written as an example that we are entitled to get paid for our work as a minister of the gospel. He says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? He goes on in verse 13, and gives an example of the temple from the Old Testament. Do you not know that those who are employed in temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul is reinforcing exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10.10, that it is right, it is proper, and it is good for you to pay the minister's of the gospel your pastors and can i just stop here for a second thank you on behalf of the pastors at this church thank you it is a privilege that we get to do what we do understanding that you sacrificially give to allow us to do that it's right paul is arguing that it's good to do this but listen to what else he says look at verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Paul states he has zero interest in getting paid, on taking hold of what is rightfully his. He has no interest in levering his position. He's not arguing to be paid. Some have taken this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, and they've really messed it up. What they're saying is, Paul's saying it's okay to play your pastors, but there's a higher calling than that, and that is of the unpaid pastor. That's ridiculous. He's arguing the exact opposite, but he's making a point to say in my position, in my calling, as a minister of the gospel, appointed by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles throughout Asia Minor, I have chosen not to take a salary so that nothing becomes an obstacle for where God's called me to be. That's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Here's the question. Why would Paul, if he's entitled to be paid, refuse to be paid in essence taking the very thing that he's entitled to and saying I won't demand my rights why would he do that I think the answer's in the rest of the passage I'm going to give you three points maintaining your enthusiasm for the gospel look at what Paul does in verse 15 maintaining your enthusiasm for the gospel here's the first point he knows his role he's a servant or he's a steward he says for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting for if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting he doesn't want any confusion on why he's preaching the gospel he understands through his personal story that anytime someone is transformed by the gospel it's not about the preacher it's about the Holy Spirit who moves and transforms And he goes, I want nothing to get in the way of the credit that goes to God. He says, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He goes on in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all i have made myself a servant to all that i may win more of them and here's what paul is saying i am a steward i have been entrusted with a calling by god and my calling is clear i am the apostle charged with giving the gospel to the Gentiles, and because that is what I've been called to do, that will be my primary focus, and I'd rather lay down my rights and not defend those so I can do what God's called me to do. He's a steward. He's not doing his thing. He's doing what God has called him to accomplish. We're all called to steward different things that God has equipped and positioned us to do, and here's the truth... I don't know what it is in your context. We're not to mirror Paul, but we are to mirror Paul as it relates to, I would rather, for the sake of the gospel, accomplish what I'm called to rather than lay hold of what I believe that I deserve. He goes on and he says in verse 20, here's the second thing. Not only does he know his role, that he's a steward, he knows his task, and that task is the gospel. He says in verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Then again in parents he says not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. That I may win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. That by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them and its blessings these are not the words of an entitled man these are the words of a man who is doing anything that he can to accomplish the things that God has called him to do that's what Paul is stressing and please I want to be careful he was called to be an evangelist A proclaimer of the gospel. Not all of us are gifted evangelists. Not all of us are called to that. This is not a charge to go up and down your street and share the gospel, though that's not a bad thing. But the call is not just evangelism, that's your witness. We're also called to worship. We're also called to work for Christ. We're called to conduct our lives in a way living with integrity that when people see us, they say there's a hope in that person that's different than mine, and I want to know what it is. They they, they live with integrity. They have a joy that isn't dependent on their circumstances. Their happiness quotient isn't based off where their expectations are in relation to their reality. All of that is living in light of the gospel, saying, listen, I'm going to look different than the world because my primary objective is understanding that I'm a steward and I know my task, that I want to live according to what Jesus has called me to do. And then here's the third thing. See it in verse 24, know your focus. Paul's focus was on imperishable things. He says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners compete but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it every athlete that exercises every athlete exercises self-control in all things they do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable so i don't run aimlessly i don't box as one beating the air but i discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others i myself should be disqualified is there anything casual about Paul's approach to what God's called him to do. I mean, from the words of those verses, it seems that he's very intentional. He's training himself. He's running a race as if to win a prize. He has his focus on not the perishable things of this world, but the imperishable things. He's very intentional. And and my question would be, If you're seeing that your enthusiasm for the things of God are fading, what are you doing intentionally about restoring that enthusiasm? I'm going to press a little further. What are you doing to prepare yourself for the things that God has called you to do? Our job as a church, what he has called Harvest, Spring Lake, and Grand Haven to be, is a church that glorifies God and it makes disciples. We're focused on that. We're trying to get you into groups where you can be known, where there's accountability, where you're not walking the Christian walk alone. Are you involved in those things? We're always thinking how can we train you to be better followers of Jesus Christ? I know this last fall filled at a parenting conference, and Kristen and I are doing a marriage conference this fall for our church, and we're looking forward to next march when we bring in a guy by the name of lee strobel who's going to do some apologetic training for our people so that you feel comfortable sharing your faith and answering some of the difficult questions that our culture will raise like we're constantly trying to equip you because there's going to come a day when god is going to say i'm using you and i don't want you to be out of shape I don't want you to be unprepared, and I want you to be ready to steward the responsibilities well that God has given you for the sake of the gospel. He says, "I don't want to be disqualified. He, it's not that he's going to lose his salvation. He doesn't want to lose the joy of running the race and being used by God as a steward and seeing God moves in the lives that He touched. So here's my question as we close. How's your guys' enthusiasm for the things of God this morning? Just just a check your pulse on these things. Just a, just a self check. How, how, how are we doing? Are, are, are we in a season where the cares of this world and the realities of life and the struggles in relationship, they're just absolutely sapping our enthusiasm. We all get there sometimes, would you agree? My goal is, by looking at the example of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, that we wouldn't stay there. Paul was a man who, because of the circumstances, because of the attack, because of the defense that he was being forced to make in chapter 9, I can see how he would be discouraged. I could see how he would lack enthusiasm. But he comes right back and he says, listen, I'm a steward. I have been called and equipped and positioned by God for a task. And I'm going to devote myself to that task and I'm going to set my eyes on the things that are imperishable because the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the example of Paul. Not just in the things that he says, but by the way that he lives. And uh, Father, I know that there are those in this room that have been in the service earlier today and, and last night, who are just in a season of discouragement. And Father, we, uh, we confess that this world is broken, and it is easy for us to uh, get our eyes off of you, and sometimes the cares of this world can be consuming. Father, I would pray that you would move in hearts this morning, my heart included. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of your love for us. Remind us that we are yours. We've been bought with a price. Remind us that you have us here for a reason, for a job to do in this season. Father, teach us to lay down our rights for the privilege of serving you. It's in your great name we pray, amen.